You're listening to What She Said with Candace Sampson, a podcast for Canadian women about Canadian women. A mansplaining free zone, What She Said is here to empower, educate, and entertain you. Public education is essential to a civilized society. It provides individuals with the knowledge and skills they need to fully participate in and contribute to their community. It also helps to create a more equal and just society by providing everyone with access to education, regardless of their socioeconomic status or other factors. Public education helps to promote critical thinking and problem-solving skills, and it can also foster a sense of civic responsibility and social cohesion. In addition, research has shown that public education has a number of positive impacts on society, including improved health outcomes, increased economic growth, and a reduction in crime rates. And yet, despite all the evidence that public education plays a crucial role in the development and prosperity of any society, it is seemingly always under threat. So today... I play devil's advocate to Dr. Prachi Savastava. Dr. Savastava is a tenured associate professor at Western University specializing in education and global development. She is also a member of the World Bank Expert Advisory Council on Citizen Engagement and Senior Research Fellow NORAG. She has been invited to provide expertise and commentary on COVID-19 education disruptions by the UNICEF Office of Global Insight and Policy, UNESCO, the BE2 Education Donor Working Group, and a range of global and Canadian civil society and non-governmental organizations. Needless to say, she could write the book on the value of public education. But today we're going to write a different book. Let's call it The Dummy's Guide to Dismantling Public Education, where we explore the critical juncture in the education system and discuss the alarming issues that threaten to dismantle the well-functioning public education system in Canada. We break down the steps that those looking to dismantle public education might take and highlight the evidence that supports the importance of public education for societies and individuals. We also discuss the motivations behind efforts to dismantle public education and the potential consequences of such actions. Meet Dr. Prachi Srivastava. Hi, Prachi. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Candice. Thanks for having me back on the show. So we've been talking a lot about education uh, over the last year. And I just, I, I guess I want to open with a question. Do you feel the education system in Canada or any of the provinces in Canada are in crisis? Do we overuse that word, crisis? I think that's a great question. Um, I think, uh, I, I don't know that I want to say the word crisis. I think we are at a very critical stage. We're at a very critical juncture, uh, given, of course, the history of, you know, the very recent history of the pandemic. And I think it's, uh, I'm sure... A lot of listeners are perhaps tired. There's, you know, this whole idea of pandemic fatigue. And, and you know, we have very different um, feelings around how to navigate the recovery. But I think what's very important to understand is that this is a critical juncture for recovery and that any long-term disruption, really, it the recovery outlives the disruption. So whatever we have seen, if our system has been disrupted for roughly two years, 
the recovery from that is going to be much longer. Is it in crisis? That's, uh, you know, that I, I, I don't, I'm not a pessimistic person by nature, but I do think there are some very, uh, you know, very concerning and actually frightening issues uh, that can jeopardize good recovery and that can actually dismantle what we have built in this country as a relatively well-functioning public education system that serves, if we're talking, you know, nationwide, almost 95% of students. Uh, so, you know, we have uh, roughly five and a half million students in, in elementary and secondary schools across the country. The majority of those are in Ontario. There's about two, 2.1 million. And most, the vast majority of those students attend public schools across the country. Public education, I mean, I think we can both agree it is a really good thing for society to have an educated population. It's good for everybody. That rising tide lifts all boats. However, when we zoom out, we see a lot that education is underfunded, that maybe Others don't agree with us that public education is good. And so today I kind of want to explore that a little bit because it seems like there are people actively working to dismantle public education for whatever motive or reason they might have. So I thought what we might do is sort of break it down at, through a series of steps. If you and I were evil people looking to dismantle public education, where would we start? So I guess, you know, thinking about the season, if we were the Grinches that wanted to steal education, what would we do? Um, I, I, I want to comment on one thing. Um, you know, the idea that public education is good for society is not really an opinion. It is actually backed in evidence. This is not an opinion-based claim. It's backed in evidence. There are 60, you know, 60 years worth. I mean, I'm just talking about the, the about the modern, relatively modern, if you want to talk about modern history, relatively more modern history, 60 years of studies that will back this. So this is not really, you know, I know, again, over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of discussion around evidence-based, science-based recommendations and all of this. This is an evidence-based, research-based claim that public education systems broadly serving the vast majority of the population, as we are so lucky to have in this country, is good for society. It is good for individuals because it allows a certain relative level of equality uh, in terms of outcomes, in terms of access to employment, in terms of life opportunities, in terms of health, in terms of welfare, in terms of social protection, in terms of gender equality, in terms of citizenship, democracy, in terms of nutrition. I mean, it, the, the literature just goes on and on. It, so that's good at an individual level and very good at a societal level. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm, I don't care about any of that because honestly, I want to tear this apart. I'm looking to create <laughs> doubt. I want to throw doubt on all of these things that are evidence-backed and carry hard data with it. I want to start creating that doubt in society so that people start to agree with me. Would that be right. the first step? Yes. And that would be a very good step. So one of the things, the first step is to actually start, as you say, if that's your intention, right? We have to remember 
This is not then a technical or evidence-based strategy. You are strategizing and you're strategizing with that intention. And if you want to strategize with that intention, which flies in the face of all the evidence that we have seen globally, nationally, individual level, then what do you do? You start with words. And, and, and in fancy academic speech, that's discourse. You start with discourse and you start with really casting doubt and finding examples that are perhaps some of them, some of those examples will be real. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that our system globally or even in Canada is completely equal for all. Okay. That's, we know that that's not the case. There are, there are systemic barriers for groups and societies and they, some of those are very hard inequities. And those are the kinds of things that we have to work on rectifying. But if you are the person, if you are the kind of um, group that wants to destroy and dismantle public education, what you do is you take those examples and you, instead of trying to rectify them, you use them as a basis of actually delegitimizing what is, on general terms, known to be fact. And, and you do that in terms of political platforms, perhaps, in terms of starting to mobilize media in a certain way. And I'm not just talking about established media, but also nowadays social media is so important. Um, you know, small fractions of different kinds of uh, social networks that we use, utilize that. And you also start by being quite vocal about those in, 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 in particularly in areas where perhaps there's some fear. There's a, there's a fear among the population about certain things. Perhaps there's a fear about losing status uh, for certain, certain groups. Perhaps there's a fear for certain other groups that they're not going to get what they need out of the system because the system has never served them. Um, and rather than trying to actually rectify that and alleviate those concerns, we use discourse and words to create a lot of doubt and to fracture um, that sentiment that, you know, the, the way out of this is a collective. Because what you want is really collective action, collective good, public goods. You want people to be able to, if you want society pro to progress, that's what you want. That's the sentiment that you need to, if that is your, if you're that Grinch, that's what you're trying to attack. So I'm going to muddy the waters then. I'm going to pull out something that probably is true. You know, the education system might be top heavy. Some of the administration might be getting paid a little too much. There might be truth in that. But I'm also going to not debunk things like litter boxes for furries in classes. Because when those two things get mixed together, it's hard to untangle them. Does that sound accurate? That's very accurate. What we would uh, I've written about this and and what 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 you're saying it what is what we would call the creative stitching together of what are essentially different arguments for the same purpose. So it's creatively stitching together. How do you stitch together the the myth? of the litter boxes for cats in terms of identity. Um, and how do you stitch that together with public education 
undermining um, freedoms or undermining, you know, societal fabric, right? That's, that's, so, so it is, that is what we would think that you're actually, if you think about it as a tapestry, you're, you're taking bits and pieces of different discourse to feed this other aim. And the aim, some, some of it might have truth to it. I mean, we know that the litter box story has no truth, but you know, how do we actually use that in a way that actually services some other aim? So I'm, I'm new at this game. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just learning how to play this role. And I really want to get into it. Can you give me an example of some people and or previous people who have used this strategy? You know, the worst examples, the absolute worst heinous examples are around conflict and war. You know, education is used in 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 contexts to inflate can be used to inflame sentiments if you want to dismantle the fabric of society for some other aim like you want to take over the society for some other aim you start with the curriculum and especially again where public education systems if they're broadly served if they broadly serve um societies you, you look at the com- curriculum and you start seeing Within the curriculum, history, for example, whose stories are told, how do we tell those stories? What's replaced? What is deleted? What is not mentioned? Um, how is it different? Look, I grew up in Montreal. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a Bill 101 kid. <laughs> I grew up in Montreal. Um, and I was a child of the seventies and the history that we were taught in Quebec is very different to the history that is taught in Ontario. Uh, but as a child, uh, as a Canadian child that grew up in the 70s, I think most people would agree, regardless of the province, that we learned nothing about Indigenous peoples. We, we didn't really learn anything about that. That was not by chance. That is very much a constructed curriculum. And so what does that mean in terms of society, Right. How, how is it that we can then use that to negate the existence of inequities, the existence of a whole population, of the population of this country, the original population of our country? What does that mean? Now, I think we're at a place now in society in Canada where, you know, that is finally starting to be recognized. Uh, we are starting to see some change. But in, viol- in, 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 in situations of violent conflict, the education system and the curriculum is used in ways to do that. That is, I think, the fundamental thing to understand is that dismantling a broadly well-serving system leaves these big gaps where there's opportunity for co-option, you know, for for, for, for interests to take over in a way that is essentially negative. So I'm going to come in. I'm going to start throwing out some maybe valid, some ridiculous uh, assertions about the public education system. Then what am I going to do? 
well, you you start off with the creative uh, with with a discourse. You start creatively stitching together, uh, you know, different discourses to meet some aim. You then start looking at the curriculum. So step three, you start looking at the curriculum. You start thinking about what parts of it should we change? What parts of it should we? And and I mean, when I mean change, I mean for the negative. What part should we get out? What should I, what part should we delete? But alongside that, one of Again, the primary things, and I've said this many, many times over the last two years, is funding. Defund the system. Defund the system in a way that is wholly inappropriate. And I'm going to reserve my comments here for high-income, rich countries. Because the context in conflict-affected countries in low-income developing countries that actually have huge amounts of debt servicing uh, so that they really cannot even afford to spend that much is very different to high-income rich countries. So if we, if we think about high-income rich countries like Canada, we're part of the G7, we're one of the larger economies, uh, we have a relatively smaller number of students to serve. The idea that there are scarce resources, which is Again, a common discourse. So we go back to how do we stitch together arguments? Scarce resources. We don't have the money. We have competing, we have competing very other, very important other competing priorities. One thing that's been brought up in the recent, uh, couple of years, especially in the American context is comparing education and, for example, police, right? So there's a big discussion now about defunding the police. Why? Because if we're looking at the public purse, we have to see where is the money being spent? Where are their overspends? What's happening? I'm not taking a stance on that. What I am saying is that is the number one strategy to dismantle any system, not just education. You dismantle a system, you defund it. And here we're talking about defunding education. So you start using the discourse that we don't have the money, that we have to spend it on other things that you picked up the point on overpaying so then you pick up the whole point about unions are essentially the problem because they protect teachers and administrators and all sorts of people working in the system who are overpaid underworked uh they don't work in the summers they have summer summers off all of this is discourse to justify underfunding or defunding especially in contexts where the idea that there are very constrained resources can be seriously challenged when you look to see where else the money is being spent. I'm going to underfund things because that seems like a great, great way to do things. And then I am going to blame everybody else for the problems in the system. Does that sound accurate? It sounds... uh... It sounds like, I think, one of the words of the year, which is gaslighting, I think. Right. I think that's been a word for the last three or four years. Uh. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so up on the, I'm not so big on the, on, on, on public discourse like that. But I, I think that's one of the words that people use. What's the goal, though? What's, what's my ultimate goal when I underfund? Because, again, we're going to look at this from how this affects society. So, my feeling is if I have an uneducated society, I can lead them 
towards other things because they're not going to be able to critically look at what I'm doing. They won't be able to focus on what I'm doing because they'll be undereducated and trying to always stay on top of things because they'll have to work a ridiculous amount of hours. I mean, it's much, much bigger than just, you know, taking away teachers' enormous, ridiculous salary for dealing with a bunch of kids all day. I mean, God, how could they ask for that kind of money? It's insane. So, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to keep throwing that out. But then the ultimate goal, though, is what? What do you think we're trying to achieve when we underfund public education? So there's two things here. The first is, well, there's many things in what you said. And I think I think it's great. You know, I think I want to go back to the underfunding in terms of the teachers, right? There is this idea that uh, in, in professions that are uh, traditionally feminized, um, and that deal with vulnerable populations and particularly with anything to do with children or that's seen almost as an extension of care giving, um, that, you know, it's almost the feminization of it kind of justifies the fact that it's not real work and the fact that the salaries are what they are, right? So you, th- there is part of that discourse as well. And again, I'm not saying this is not specific to Canada. This is a global, this is shown to be true in the global literature on, 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 on these issues in terms of employment. If you look at different employment sectors and you look at the employment data and you look to see the relative level of education that you need to become a certain job, to get into a certain job and you compare salaries, we do see differences in, in jobs and employment areas that are traditionally feminized. So that's one thing. But you're asking a different question. You're like, okay, what's, why would I do this? So why would you do this? Well, if you are wanting to, so the thing about what, you know, under education is twofold. And that's where the comment about the curriculum, your step one comes back into it because you still need a relatively well trained workforce. Even if you don't want an educated workforce, you still need a relatively well-trained workforce because you need people to have skills to work in sectors of the economy for that to be, you know, to, to economically develop, right? And to actually sustain yourself. So that's where the whole question around, you can have a relatively well-trained or a well-serving system, which is up to a certain level. People get a certain basic level of of, of education or training, but it's very much focused around this economic productivity line, which I'm not saying is unimportant. It is, of course, important. But the idea behind it is when we look at the curriculum and you see, okay, what parts of it has we taken out? The part you're talking about is the critical thinking part, the values-based part. What kind of a society do we want to live in, right? And that is also taught in the curriculum. It is sometimes explicitly taught, but it's sometimes very implicitly taught in terms of the hidden curriculum. There is a term called the hidden curriculum, and those are the values. How do we teach? How do we interact with people? How, how do we treat different students in the classroom? Where do they sit? Um, are there segregated classrooms, right? There used to be in the U.S. Are, are there residential schools? That is all part of the explicit or hidden curriculum, right? So when 
you want to start defunding, it goes side by side with this idea of the actual content of the curriculum. Why would you want to do that? So what you would want to do is you would still want to have a relatively well-serving uh, system that uh, reaches most people who will be of working age in order to give them skills that you think are going to be very relevant for your economy. And what you want to defund are the parts of the system that actually allow for higher order critical thinking skills, for people to really reach their potential, for different kinds of citizenship and, and, and if we want to say democracy, some people don't want to say that, but that's fine. Inclusive aims, citizenship aims. That's what you want to defund. Right. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, but I am only funding reading, writing, and arithmetic. I am not interested in this woke agenda because that's not happening because <laughs> I don't want people to know that they have value. Absolutely. And that is what you would do. And even with the reading, writing, and, and, and arithmetic, the three R's, you can still be more inclusive about it, but you, you won't be, right? You can still even, you can teach the three R's using very different kinds of curriculum and material and strategies, but that's not how you would do it. You would defund that part of it, or you would be less inclusive about that. You, what you would do is be much more, um, I don't want to, you know, much more focused on just getting the basic skills. And, and that is what you would do. So when we see things like, um, proposing having larger virtual online classes instruction in place of in-person, more formative classes in secondary school. And, 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 and you have larger classes and that becomes part of something you have to do. You have no choice. You're not funding it ad adequately. There is a proper way of delivering online education. And usually, if you're going to do it properly, it's actually more expensive because you need smaller class sizes, more tailored instruction, synchronous instruction in, in a different way. It's actually more It is actually, if you're going to do it right, more expensive. But the way that it's done is you plonk everybody in front of a Zoom or a platform, whatever platform, Google, or I, I don't want to pick on those companies, but you just plonk them in front of a platform. You have a set curriculum, which is very step-by-step, -step, no real room for discussion, and there's no choice. The students actually don't have a choice whether or not they want to take it. You replace what was already a relatively, you know, maybe a relatively better kind of face-to-face -face interaction, more choice for students with this kind of standardized, very platform-based, external metrics-based, but only really, you're only, you're only counting very small numbers of metrics and you replace that. And we have seen that as a proposal in Ontario, right? That, that is a proposal that's actually going forward. So those are the kinds of things you would do. The other thing you would do is you would introduce the notion of choice in a very weird way. So you would say that all parents have the right to choose. And this is, of course, every parent wants the, you know, we, we start from the assumption that the vast majority of parents want the best for their children and they want to do what they can to protect their interests. And children are one of the most vulnerable groups in society because they are so young and cannot make those decisions on their own. They're developing. They, they require a lot of scaffolding. Of course, we, we, we start with that. They require protection. We start with that assumption. Okay. 
But then you use this right to choose discourse. And anytime governments start using the right to choose discourse, it is code for privatization. It is code for privatizing the public education system in high income rich countries where, again, only around 90, 90, 95% of students are using the public education. You hear the word choice code for privatization. What does that mean? In public education systems, it means things like giving vouchers to parents, taking money out of the education budget and giving vouchers to parents to say, we're going to take X thousand dollars out of or, you know, per child out of the budget. We're going to give you a voucher and you can choose whichever school you want that will accept this voucher. Now, there are certain systems that have universal voucher systems. And we've seen like in Chile that happened. And after 20 years, because, you know, we really see the real effects of this after one generation. Initially, it looked like it was going to help with uh, with inclusion and the data were looking fine. And then after 15, 20 years, we saw lots of social unrest, inequities because of the education system, which led to big, big revolts by students and parents in terms of this voucher idea. Now, we're seeing that being proposed here, too. The other thing you might do is take out money directly from the education system and give it in the hands of parents, not specifically for vouchers to choose a school, but for whatever tangential, quote unquote, education costs. Now, those are called direct household cash transfers. That is that is what it's called. And many times we've seen that in Ontario. That happened. We've seen about a funneling out of close to maybe between $1.6 billion around that much money that's come out directly of the education budget, gone into very small amounts directly to households. Not specifically targeted for education. It's not earmarked for education in the sense that the budget was earmarked for education, but when you give it to the household, they can use it for whatever they want. And the amount is so minimal that it cannot really cover any substantial education-related costs. So even if Parents want to do private tuition or they want to do supplemental education or they want to buy uh, some kind of software or they want to help with tutoring or whatever it is that they need. It's too small. Collectively, that amount could amount to $60,000 a school, $100,000 a school, depending on how large the school is. And 60, 60 to 100K can get a lot of infrastructure, can get a new teacher or two. It can get... um you know, full opportunities for students to participate in all sorts of activities. It can have full supplemental education opportunities. When you think about it collectively, a $1.6 billion cut, if that amounts to a cut, is a substantial amount of money filtered out of this, of the education budget, which was earmarked for education going on other things now. So that's the other thing you would do. Those are the kinds of things that you would do. Yeah. It also is great to me because honestly, like, I don't want to have to have my friends who are funding my campaign go to school with the plebes. Like, no, like they need their own place where they can go get a better education. But at the same time, I'm happy to bribe people to vote for me so that I can keep underfunding the system. This is perfect. I mean, it's almost foolproof, really, if we continue with this. So now the problem becomes 
Sometimes I get these really stubborn people at the local level that I can't get my agenda through to. So how do I fix that? That's a very good question. This is, you know, you want to look at how our schools are governed. And you want to look at them at a very local community level. How are they governed? What's the governance system of our schools? In Ontario, we have school trustees. And I don't think people really understand how important that position is and that it's an elected position. I don't know how many people really understand that. Um, why is that so important? Well, municipal elections, it's part of the municipal elections. And municipal elections are seen to be, in a weird way, somewhat apolitical in the sense that Candidates aren't affiliated with any particular party, right? So I think uh, you, like there was that article I think you had mentioned once about the CBC saying that it's uh, nonpartisan elections, right? That that municipal elections are nonpartisan. They are technically nonpartisan in the sense that, okay, maybe there isn't a, 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 a traditional party that the candidates are usually affiliated with, but they're still political because they are a way of governing that is actually based on some level of understanding of community needs. It coalesces interest and it is also values-based. So as a result, when we start rethinking the fact that school trustees are elected officials who are elected at the level from the municipality, from the municipal elections, we then understand that this is a political process, that the schools are not just governed, they're not just internally administered, i.e. internal administration is the people, for example, principals, VPs, teachers, you might have a school council that is a parents council, right? These are internal administration kind of systems. But there's also a link with the community, and that's actually a formal link, and it's a formal political link. The, the, the school trustee. And that school trustee is the individual who is basically a bridge between the community and the school on a governance, on a political level, and also with the school board, right? So there are lots of very important micro-political interactions here. So if you want to destabilize that, what you do is you downplay that. You don't, you don't draw attention to the political, you don't draw attention to the municipal elections too much. You don't really let people know so much that this is how the schools are really governed. And you get people in. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that this is always the case, but there will be people who come in who have different agendas. And if people are, if the community is not aware then it actually very quickly can become an area of unrest, you know, at the community level, because you have people coming in that are supposed to be the bridge, who are supposed to bridge the interests of the community with the school. But actually, maybe it's at a time when there's a lot of discourse that's been beating down, where there's a lot of doubt that's been cast about the functioning of the system, where a lot of this is just under the radar. Then you destabilize the local school that way. Well, I mean, if I was looking for, you know, some inspiration, I would I'd simply look south to Moms for Liberty, who, you know, have backed over 500 
uh, school board candidates across the country down there, uh, 49% of which have won. And, you know, they're just, they're awesome because they're totally putting a stop to this woke agenda. They're done with this garbage with kitty litter boxes and classrooms. I mean, these are the people we really need to look to as the example of really destabilizing public education because you're not going to do it from the top down. You got to start at the bottom. It's, you know, I, to be very, to be very uh, honest, I mean, I can't comment so much on that, on, on that because I haven't been following it very closely. I, I also I've read the articles, but I, I haven't been following it closely. But I can say that it's not just top down. It's top down and bottom up, right? There's so, so it's how do those groups, how do groups coalesce around what interests? And how does that feed into this bigger agenda of dismantling education? And are there links? So there have been shown to be links between community, I'm, I'm using air quotes, community groups and funding bodies, private interests. There have been shown to be those links in specific sectors. It has happened. And we know that that is how those kinds of groups will coalesce. The question is, how do we actually, um, and, and just to go back, you know, we saw some pretty worrying trends in the recent municipal elections that happened in Ontario just last month. Um, you know, bringing it back to the domestic context, there were some pretty worrying, worrying trends in terms of some of the candidates. There was a lot of discussion in, you know, on social media and, and in some of the, established press on some of the candidates running on anti-inclusive um, ideals, uh, uh, anti, uh, you know, LGBTQ plus ideals, anti-minority language ideals, anti, and, and it was actually a surprise. The, the part about the story is not that the people were running. The surprise, the part of the story that was really interesting was the level of surprise that local communities and parents had that these people were actually on the ballot. Because again, it is under the radar. They're not very well publicized, those elections. And people don't realize in certain communities, I know firsthand that when people actually looked at the list of candidates and they tried to do some research, you couldn't even get any information on who the candidates were. In certain instances, when they found out who they were, it was shocking to them that these were the kinds of candidates that were running who could purportedly represent their community to the school. There was a lot of eye-opening, I think, even here. So the question is, you know, is it just a top-down agenda? No, There's, there, there, there then becomes these coalition, coalitions from a top-down top and bottom-up approach. And, and, and sometimes they're formal, but sometimes they're not. I'm not suggesting that Everything is formalized. Sometimes it's, it's, it's non-formal. Sometimes it's feeding that the discourse that you, that you started in step one is now feeding down into communities. And then there are interest groups that are sprouting up around that discourse and then using that. It becomes a cycle. It becomes a cycle. But it's kind of brilliant. Sure. It's kind of brilliant when you think about it because if I create pressure from the top and the bottom, I'm going to get that diamond, 
in the center that I'm after, sure. and that is dismantling public education. Sure. So this so far, again, if I'm creating a handbook on this, it's very smart. So now I'm going to have to go take a shower when we're done this podcast because I really hate it playing this role through the entire thing because it, clearly I disagree with all of this. I think public education is one of the best tools we have for a functioning civil society. And if we lose that, we're going to lose a lot more than we think. So with that being said, I want to take just a few minutes here because we've, we're out of time. And I hope people have really just listened and maybe we'll create some awareness around what's happening in all these different levels. But for those of us now who want to see the value in public education, what would you say is the first thing we should really be doing? I think, you know, I think if you are that Grinch, what you depend on, what you count on is the lack of civility and lack of any thought or um, critical thinking on the part of the population. And you depend on people being very self-interested. And what you actually overlook is the fact that that can only take people so far that actually most people, at least in our country, have gone through a public education system. They do actually see the value in it. And and in fact, the pandemic, if anything, showed how important a well-functioning education system is. In fact, a lot of these strategies that I mentioned in our tongue-in-cheek conversation about funneling out the money and the online instruction done badly and you know, vilifying the unions, a lot of that just did not stick with the public. And that is the number one underestimation, I think, that, you know, if you are that Grinch that you're making, is that people are going to just follow. And in fact, what we're seeing is there is a lot of very strong opposition to these strategies. It isn't being swallowed hook, line, and sinker. That's not what we're seeing. And that is what gives me a lot of hope and optimism that actually it's not that it's it, people don't have the wool pu pulled over their eyes. They see that there is something wrong and that what should be done is not being done. We, we saw that. We did see that very strongly with, um, you know, when, when the school closures just became extended and extended, and then we saw that the education budget is being cut now in Ontario and has been funneled out. There's also cuts, like legitimate cuts, to the tune of $12 billion over the next seven years. I've said it so many times, but it's, it, it's still happening. People are taking action. So what is the best way? It's a longer term way. If there are interests coalescing around dismantling public education there should be interests and groups coalescing around supporting it and and building it and being very strongly opposed to these kinds of um measures because the thing about discourse is it works both ways right it's not just that you can use it to dismantle something you can also use it to be very strong about opposition and use it in a way to really coalesce that support and and be open about it and be transparent about it and in every 
in most cases, what's happened when there is an extreme suppression of those kinds of value, values, you know, of open values, of, of openness and, and critical, in most cases in the world, over time, what you see is some kind of real revolt. I'm not suggesting people go out and, and do, you know, things and do mass revolt. And I'm not suggesting violence. What I'm saying is people need to be very critically engaged. We are very lucky that on, for the most part, we live in a, in a peaceful, civil society where we can actually have these conversations and we can challenge. We're so lucky that we, fortunate that we've constructed our system that we can publicly challenge government at every level, municipal level, provincial level, federal level, you know, at every level to publicly challenge those kinds of actions and to start taking much more interest in understanding the value of education for all of these, you know, for our rights, for our benefits. And even if you want to be self-interested, just for your pure self-interest. You know, just just for your pure self-interest. If, if that's all you really care about, well, that's where you need to focus. Yeah, I agree. Honestly, I, I think we're going to have to wrap this up because we could go on forever about this. However, I would say education is the key to everything in this country. Uh, having an educated population who can think critically will do us all well in the future and and if you want to be self-interested this serves you this serves your children absolutely uh so that's the only way to think about it as far as i'm concerned uh prachi i can't thank you enough for walking through this with me and i hope people listen because we have been entirely too apathetic and to see i'm just going to call him out stephen lecce standing up there slipping in that little discussion about vouchers uh, is pretty gross. It's really gross, especially when we know what's happened in the United States the last, you know, few decades. It's worrying. So, yeah, very worrying. So, uh, I hope people, uh, you know, get more engaged. I, it's the only way we're going to get through. I want to. I want to. When we close, want to want to make one last comment. We've been apathetic because our system has been relatively okay. Uh, we've had we've had inequities and entrenched inequities. Right. I'm not gonna. I I work on those issues, so I'm not gonna sit here and say we haven't. But we've been apathetic because we've been relatively okay. I think, it, so in that sense, okay, you know, we can understand. But this is a very different time. And we are really at a critical stage of re-evaluating what we want out of our systems, all systems. Absolutely. Okay. Prachi, uh, we're going to see you in 2023 because conversations about education are just not going to go away. Uh, but thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Candice, for having me on the show. If you liked today's episode, please take a moment to share it with others. Also, be sure to subscribe to What She Said Talk with Candice Sampson on your favorite podcast provider. Stay up to date with my newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, you can catch What She Said on the radio weekly in Toronto, Ottawa, Surrey, and Sylvan Lake.
What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.